Well, uh, thank you again for coming. Uh, thanks for uh, being the church. Uh, if you're new here today, uh, we welcome you uh, and say thanks for coming to Harvest. We're uh, um, intentional about being intergenerational here, and so um, see a lot of people of different uh, age ranges and life stages here, and so I want to thank you for coming and, and being part of what uh, God's doing in our, our midst here. We've been uh, going through the book of Ecclesiastes and looking at this notion of what is uh, life all about and uh, just kind of revolving our times around this idea of, of vapor and how life is, is like that. Uh, our tour guide through this search for the meaning of life has been uh, a teacher, uh, has been a teacher and has been walking us through trying to find out what is life all about. Uh, he's led us on a series of different journeys and, and taking a bunch of different roads to try and find what life is about. And he found under, uh, looking under every rock and over every tree, he's found a bunch of different things to be, uh, to be insufficient as far as giving meaning in life. Uh, he found that work, uh, pleasure, wisdom, none of these things worked, none of these things brought lasting pleasure. And so he realized that none of these things are going to cut it. Under the sun, all of these things are meaningless. And even life itself is vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. It's, it's ephemeral and it's so elusive, trying to find what this is all about. And so last week for the first time, he lifted his gaze, not under the sun, but above the sun and found a huge piece to the puzzle of the meaning of life when he said, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe we can find meaning in the fact of God's sovereign control over the events and of the moments and over the times of our lives and of the world. And as we saw, not only was that a, a major piece to the puzzle, but that was the box that held the picture to the puzzle because God sees a perspective that we don't see. Now, in response to that, we look at today's text. We're going to start in in chapter 3, verse 16. But one of the things we see that uh, these arguments to this idea that God is in control, if God really is in control, then why is our world so messed up? You ever wonder that? Maybe some of us, after hearing the message last week, we're like, yeah, I, okay, I understand that. And, and maybe in the moment, we're, we're moved and convicted to think that, yeah, God really is in control. But give it a couple days, and we begin to think about this. If God's really in control, then what the heck is going on with that oil spill in, uh, in the Gulf? What the heck is going on in, in North Korea and South Korea? What's going on in all of these things in the world where we hear about all this chaos and read about all these things on Fox News and on the newspaper? If God's really in control, then what in the world is wrong with our world? That's kind of the approach that the teacher wants to take as we look into this next section, as he saw certain things under the sun that caused people to say, if that's really true, then why is it that these things take place? So Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16, we're going to start there and read uh, through chapter 4, verse 6. This is God's word. It says, and I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, 
and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who, have, who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that's done under the sun. I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless at chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. This is God's word. A a lot of ground that we want to cover here, but we're going to see as a teacher thinks about and ponders God's sovereign control over the affairs of our lives, as he thinks about these things, the question is, and what is wrong with all of these things in this life? What's wrong with this world and all the things that we see? And so we're going to just kind of break this into two parts. We're going to look at what he saw and then how we're to respond. What did he see? There's three things specifically that it says that he saw as he looked under the sun. The first thing that he saw, uh, is starting in verse 16, is he saw uh, wickedness. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Not only is he seeing wickedness, but he's seeing wickedness where there should not be wickedness. He's seeing wickedness where there should be judgment, where there should be justice. Okay, it's one thing when you go to the west side and you see a witch, you know that she's going to be wicked. But when you see Dorothy acting wicked, then you know something ain't right. Right? Like when Lex Luthor starts plotting all kinds of evil, that's just kind of ho-hum. But when Superman starts plotting evil, then you think something's wrong with our world. That's what, that's what the teacher is seeing here. Saying, okay, I understand that there's wickedness in this life, but if God's really in control, then what do we do about the fact that in the place of judgment, in the place of justice, wickedness was there? Saying, in this place where it shouldn't be, I'm seeing all kinds of wickedness, and that's causing him to, 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 to have this sense of frustration and this sense of what is going on here. In the courtrooms where there should be justice, there's wickedness, there's corruption, there's judges who are, who are, who are wicked, to say that you're, you're, you're uh, guilty until you're proven rich. Isn't that how a lot of court systems in the world work? Uh, you're guilty right, because that's how we see the evidence. But if you've got enough money here, then, then, then you're innocent. The, the poor being oppressed, people who don't have being oppressed by systems and by structures and by, by, by uh, a, a world that, that continues to, to beat them down. In the place of justice, there's wickedness. The place where... Maybe we see this in, in, in racism or in, in structures that, that perpetuate this kind of uh, oppression or injustice against those of, of different races or different ethnic, whatever it might be. He's seeing these things under the sun. And then he comes to this thought. He says in verse 18, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they're like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both as one dies so dies the other. And he goes on and he says, here, let me, let me just break this down a little bit. We're asking this question, what's wrong with the world? Here's part of what's wrong with the world, is that when push comes to shove, we act like animals, right? As, as I was growing up, one of the advantages I had was having an older brother, and he taught me things. He was three years older. See, he taught me things that um, I, I didn't know before. And so when I was in like first grade and he was in fourth grade, he would, he would say to me one day, he said, what do you think is the smartest animal in the world? And I would say, well, I, maybe, like a, maybe a dog or an elephant maybe. And, and he would say, no, the smartest animal is a human being. And I was like, come on, man, humans are not animals. And he's like, yeah, they are, they're, they're animals. So I said, really? And I believed him, and he was right. And then I went to school, and I said, hey, I asked my buddies, what's the smartest animal in the world? And they said, oh, I don't know, maybe a dog or an elephant or a monkey. I said, no, 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 it's a human being. They're like, come on, humans aren't animals. I said, ask the teacher. And she would, she would say, yeah, he's right, humans are animals. The teacher's saying, you know what? 
on a, even on a base level. Hey, when we treat people with wickedness, hey, we're no better than animals. And that's what we are. We, we, when we get cornered, we're only thinking about ourselves. The default mode of our hearts, of our lives, is self-preservation. We kick and we scream and we do whatever we want so that we could get on top. He's saying, this is the wickedness that I see in this world. And, and this is how similar we are. At the end of the day, both animals and men and humans go to the grave. We both die. He's saying, you're more alike with the animal than you think. And that's the first thing that he saw under the sun was this wickedness in the place of, 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 of justice. The second thing that he sees, if you look in chapter 4, verse 1, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. The second thing that he saw not only was wickedness, but he saw oppression. I had oppression in, in this context. What he's saying basically is, is those who have power taking advantage of those who don't have power. Right, don't we see this all the time? It is over 2,000 2,500, however many years ago this was written, and yet the same sad thing that he saw under the sun are the same things that we're seeing under the sun. The same kind of oppression, the same kind of, of people in, in, in power lording it over those who don't have power. People who have a voice lording it over those who don't have a voice. And so we see this perpetual cycle where children are being kidnapped and trafficked across borders, where women are being beaten in their if they speak out, the oppression just continues and continues and continues, where young children are being uh, uh, oppressed and used for, for their own gain, where you go to Haiti and people were uh, luring kids with food in the aftermath of the earthquake so that they might kidnap them, that they might use them for slave labor. All of this oppression that's being seen in, in places, and he's seeing it, he's saying, here's the worst thing about it, is that not only are they oppressed, but they cry tears and there's no one to comfort them. They cry themselves to sleep, and the only food that they have is the tears that come from their eyes. This is the oppression that I see. If God really is in sovereign control, then what in the world is wrong with situations like this? And I think about the comfortless oppressed. I think about this, this, this little girl in, in, in Korea who is no more. You remember hearing this story a few weeks back, and it, it came out in Yahoo and all kinds of different places where there's this Korean couple they had this baby, a prematurely born baby, yet they were addicted to this game. Uh, I forget what the game was called. It was some virtual child-rearing game where they would play it at the internet cafe in their neighborhood, and they would play for hours upon hours upon hours, stopping every, every 12 hours to feed their baby. Their baby would be fed once a day in this 12-hour break. As they're raising this virtual child, neglecting this real child who's been born of their loins. And how many tears were shed? They were arrested a few weeks back because this child died of malnutrition. You think about the tears of the oppressed. How many tears did she, did she shed? How many tears flowed from her eyes and there was no one there to comfort her? Saying, this is what we see. And he says, you know what? What comfort do we have then? Under the sun, here's what it is. Here's the best escape route. I declared that the dead who'd already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Saying, so in light of a world like that, it's better that you're dead than to be alive. Then he goes on, he says, but you know what's better than all of these? Is to never have been born, to have never seen this evil under the sun. 
the oppressed who have no comforter is an evil under the sun. But then the last thing he sees in verse 4, and I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He talked about this a few weeks back as we put our hope for meaning in life, in our work, in our labor, in our achievement, in our schools, and trying to get good grades. And why, why, why do we strive for all these things? He cuts to the heart of it here and he says, you know what, all these things that we do, it's driven because of an envy of our neighbor. That's why we want all of these things. That's why we want more and more and more. It's not so much that we just want more, but we want more compared to somebody else. We think that life is graded on a curve and it doesn't matter all the great things we have if we look at our neighbor next to us and we don't have what they've got, then we want what they have and so it causes us to work and work and work and work more and more and more because we want a little bit bigger, a little bit more, a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit more advanced and high tech. saying that's what drives all of our achievement. That's what drives all of our labor. It's what drives the NBA player to say, I want a new contract, not because he needs more money, but because he needs more money compared to somebody else because he wants to be the highest paid player at his position. Saying the reason why you want that new toy or new gadget is not just for the functionality and the pleasure that it brings to you, but because you don't want to be the only one who doesn't have it. Saying you go to the store and you want that jacket, not just because you want that jacket, but because you want people to say, wow, you've got that jacket, right? Saying this is what drives all the things that we do. It's envy, it's labor, uh, it's envy-driven labor in our desire to, to want all of these things. He says, in order to catch the person on top of us on this ladder, we need to step on those people who are below us. You see, and again, we miss out on the very essence of what work was meant to do. B. It was meant to be a, a, a giving of our gifts and talents is to contribute in the build-up culture and society to honor God, but instead we make it something else. Instead of seeing people as companions to be embraced, we see them as competition to be beaten. So what is it then? What is it at the heart of the matter? What's wrong with the world? Here's what's wrong. If you look at all three of these things, here's a unifying theme about all of these things, is that because of the wickedness, oppression, and envy, we fail to treat people the way that God calls us to treat them. What is wrong with the world that we fail to treat people the way God intended us to treat them. Let me, let me turn the mirror a little bit inward to ourselves. Let's get a little bit deeper. What's wrong with the world? Back in the, in the 1900s, and we talk about 1900s, it was like hundreds of years ago, but it was really like 11 years ago. But back in the 1900s in Great Britain, a newspaper called The Times uh, put out this one question, and they sent it out to several prominent authors in, in, the, in, in the Great Britain uh, area. And the question was, we're asking people, to write, asking people to write essays in response to this one question, what's wrong with the world? And so people sent in their contributions. There's a, a, a great Christian theologian, author named G.K. Chesterton, wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And his essay was written in a letter form, very simple. And he said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. And you know, I think if we're honest with ourselves, what's wrong with the world? I think if I'm honest with myself, I'm honest with you, here's what's wrong with the world. It's me. I'm what's wrong with the world. See, I can kick and scream about all the wickedness in the places where judgment should be, and yet I realize that I'm not a whole lot different. Maybe we're not a whole lot different. 
You see, this is, this is the very essence of what Jesus condemned in the Pharisees. It was a sense of, the problem is with them, but I've got it all together. The problem is with them, they need to be more like me. And I understand that we, at, at times, we're called to be this, we are the salt and light of the world, and we need to speak in those terms sometimes, but at the same time, we need to realize how closely this ecclesiastical writing is tied with our lives. We can talk about all that's wrong in our world and all the injustice in society. And yet, when we cheat on our exams, how much different are we than the ones that he's writing about here, the ones that we see? When we lie about our age in order to get a discount, how much different are we than the people that he's writing about here? Seriously, let's think about this here. What the heck is wrong with this world? It's not just them out there. It's us here. It's me. It's maybe it's you. Probably it's you also. We talk about all of the oppression. Oh, I hate ch- children being trafficked and I hate children being kidnapped and all of these things that are happening. But every time we objectify a human being, a man or a woman, we're doing the same thing. Every time we live and praise a sexuality in the ways of the world rather than the ways of Scripture, and we go and we buy these kinds of movies or we visit these kinds of websites and we propagate these kinds of things, as long as the money is there, then there's going to be people who are drawing people into this industry and kidnapping and trafficking into this industry. What's wrong with the world? It's not just them out there. It's us. We talk about all the fact that why, why are these, these athletes getting paid so much when teachers get paid so little, when they do so much more, and yet we're no different in our envy and our seeking and our striving after all of these things to keep up with the Joneses or the Lees or the Kims or whoever it is. We're no different. If we're honest with ourselves, what is wrong with the world? The problem is us. We're what's wrong with the world. And we can go with one of two ways here. The, you know, we hear it all the time. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing, good women do nothing. And Brooke Fraser said here, now that I have seen, I am responsible. And if we see these things, then how then shall we respond? The teacher gives three ways that we should respond. Starting in, in, in verse 17 here, in response to the fact that there's wickedness, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Here's what, here's what the author is saying, saying, in the same way that all of these things are vapor, chasing after the wind, so too is the fact that wickedness triumphs and wins over the day. It says, a day of reckoning is coming when God will set all of these things straight, and if we take this coupled with the rest of Scripture, we see that God is a God who fights for the victim, who fights against injustice. And the call for you and me is that we do the same, that we don't turn a blind eye to it. Every day that goes by, that wickedness continues to run the, uh, run the, uh, rule the roost. Every day that wickedness goes by, we do nothing. It continues to win the day. Saying, as God is a fighter, a defender of the victim, so too shall we be. Tony Campolo, very controversial uh, Christian speaker, um, very liberal to the left side, but uh, his heart beats for God and for the things of God in a way that, that many people don't. He was speaking at uh, Biola University in L.A., which is a Christian school, it stands for Bible Institute of Los Angeles. But he was speaking at their chapel service some time back, and one of my, one of my friends was at, at the chapel service, and um, he was talking about uh, the question of God's justice in our world and social justice and how Jesus was a fighter uh, for those who were victims of, a, of, of wickedness. 
And he said something to the effect of, how many of you believe that the church is fighting for justice the way that Jesus would want us to? And many people raised their hand. And, and, and then he went on and he said, this, and then this is what he said in response to that. He said, many of you feel like the church is fighting as an agent of Jesus' justice. But let me try, let me try and get this right because it's, it's very powerful what he said. Okay, it, okay. Let me, he said, many of you feel like, like the church is doing uh, a right job in fighting for justice in the world. And then he said, and that's BS. But he dropped the S-bomb on that chapel service and everyone was stunned. Like, oh my gosh, we're chapel here. Right? This is like Bible college. He said, many of you think that the church is fighting for Jesus' justice. That's just BS. And everyone was just completely like, oh my goodness, he didn't just, did he just say that? And he said, here's the problem. Here's the problem. That the majority of you in here are more upset that I just said that word than you are over the fact that 80% of the world is dying because of poverty. And that's BS. And he said it again. And it was like, oh my gosh. But you get past the shock value of it and let's think about this for a second. Which really is of weightier importance to God? And, I, and I, I don't, I'm not one to go around flippantly throwing curse words out there. I don't. But you have to think about this. Right? Now, I, I, Albert Einstein, he wasn't a Christian. One of my professors at the seminary that I was at uh, lived with Einstein. He knew Einstein pretty well, which shows how elderly this professor is. But uh, Einstein was a, was a Jew, wasn't a real practicing Jew, but here's one of the things that I, I, I remember him saying, that in Germany, it was only the church, it was only the church who stood in the way of Hitler's oppressive regime and his suppression of the truth. It was only the church. No one else did it. He said, as much as I grew up hating the church, I have to say with sincerity and with honesty that they are a praiseworthy group of people because they're the only ones who care about these things. He would also later go on to say, you know what? The world is a wicked place. It's an evil place. It's a scary place, not because of the people who do wicked, but because of the people who don't do anything to fight it. So the first response that he gives here is, is that we fight against injustice. But the second thing that we see here says, I saw in chapter 4, verse 1, in the middle of verse 1, he said, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. The second thing that we called to do in response is that we would comfort the oppressed. We see, we see people like this all the time, not only in the news, not only on websites for humanitarian organizations, but we see this all the time. Whenever someone is being oppressed, whenever someone is being victimized, or whenever someone's rights are being taken from them, the call of God in our lives is that we would comfort those who are oppressed, to get close enough to them, as Steve Brown says, that we would taste the salt in their tears, that we would be there to comfort them in their oppression, that we would be such people. Martin Niemöller was a uh, theologian, uh, again, in Germany uh, during the time of, of Hitler's rise, and uh, he just said something really profound, this great quote that he said, he said, when I was living in Germany, first they came for the communists. But because I wasn't a communist, I didn't say anything. And then they came for the Jews. But because I wasn't a Jew, I didn't say anything. Then they came for the union workers. And because I wasn't a union worker, 
I didn't say anything. And then they came for the Catholics. But because, I'm not, but because I wasn't a Catholic, I didn't say anything. Then lastly, they came for me. And then there was no one else to speak up. That's pretty powerful stuff. Good night, man. Who are the voiceless people in our world? That we have a voice and we have the resources, that we have the position of influence to be able to do something about. That there are scores of people who have a voice and who have an opportunity to say something and to do something. He's calling us, would we do something about it? And then the last thing that we see, in, uh, starting in, in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. In light of the envy-driven work that we do, the last thing that he sees is we can find contentment in God. But let me try and, and, and paint the picture of what he's trying to show here. He has three sets of hands here. The first set, of, the last set of hands, actually, but the first one we'll look at, says two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. He's seeing people with two hands full of all that they've got and is longing for more. It's an envy-driven work that, whose hands are full with all of these things, but he's longing for more and more and more. And at the end of the day, it says, what does he have in his hands? It's just, a, a, it's just wind. It's vapor. There's nothing there. He wants more, and he wants more, and he wants more. Think that's the picture of envy-driven work. Now, in response to that, we can take one of two approaches. One, in light of all that's going on, we can say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exit the rat race. This is what he says, so verse 5. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. This is of no hands full. Yes, his hands are folded. He's just sitting there doing nothing. Saying, in light of all that envy and all that work, in light of all these things, I'm just going to exit that world. And I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to fold my hands and let there be nothing to show for my life. Saying that's not the approach we're to take. The proper approach, he says in verse 6, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. Here's what he's saying. To have one hand filled with your work, but then have another hand free that we might give. Here's, here's what he's saying. It, throughout the Bible, Psalm 73, 23 in particular says, one hand, our right hand given in uh, surrender to God, that's the symbol of, of our contentment. That's the symbol of what's important to us. Saying with one hand, we continue to work and to give of ourselves to other people, but with the other hand, we find our contentment in God. The question is, do we give God the time to be our contentment? Or are we giving all of our time to our work and to our studies and to our labor and all of these other things chasing after the wind that we don't have time to find contentment in God? He's saying, in, it, when we do find contentment, that's when we begin to realize that I don't need to manipulate other people, like Francis Chang says, but we can minister to other people. That our hands are not bu- busy uh, being filled, that we have to step on other people, but we can freely give and give what we've got to others and find contentment in our work so that we might enjoy that as a gift and then give that, uh, uh, to others what we have. You see, when all is said and done, These questions that the Old Testament, that the writer, that the teacher is asking in the Old Testament finds their answers in the New Testament. Is there hope after death? What happens when we go to the grave? Does our spirit go up and the spirit of animals go down to the... What happens? Is there a comforter for us? 
And so the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that there was one who would come, who would make all of these things right. You see, back in, in the garden, again, we go back to the Garden of Eden. We go back to Genesis here. The way that it was, was created was that God was the creator, and in the image of God, imago Dei, human beings were created. In the image of God with dignity, with worth, with purpose, with a hope, with destiny. And to subdue the earth was the man's call, to name the animals and to take care of them. But in the temptation in the garden, do you remember what happened? The serpent came and he tried to flip that order upside down to put serpent, to put the animal, to put creation over man and to put man over God. And with that flipping came the dehumanization of humanity. And we began to treat people like animals. We treat, began to treat God like just one of us. God's just my homie. He's just my friend. He doesn't have sovereign rule over my life. He's just another person that I go to when I'm in t- my times of need. And, and if I don't like him, then I'll take his arms and his legs and I'll nail them to a cross. Because when all is said and done, the dehumanization of people leads us to, to look at God and, and, and when we're cornered, it's either fight or flight. Jesus Christ was the one who came to be surrendered giving his life as a quote-unquote victim of grave injustice. And as he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, he spoke not a word in defense of himself. He was the oppressed without a comforter because when he cried out, the only one who could comfort him, my God, my God, he had forsaken him on the cross. Jesus was the one, he was completely content with what he had and yet he gave himself up so that the comfortless could be comforted. And as we sang, he didn't just remain on the cross or in the grave, but rising from the grave, he gave life to restore fallen humanity to the dignity, to the worth that we were created with. See, when we see what Jesus did on the cross, we can treat people the way that he wanted us to treat them because, you see, Jesus didn't just die for the victims of oppression. He died for the perpetrators of those acts of crime also. He died for those sins. He died for those crimes. He died for ours and theirs alike so that we don't need to treat evil with evil, but we overcome evil with good in praying for these enemies, in loving them, in praying for them, in, 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 in seeking to do what's right. And in so doing, Jesus Christ restored creation to an even better place than it was originally meant to be. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Not only does he promise that this world can be better, but he's saying when this God, seemingly God-forsaken world, is over and it's, it's, it's gone to its expiration date, then a new world is coming that's going to be infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. That's the hope that we have. That's the destiny that we have. That's what we fight towards. That's what we work towards. And until we see that day become reality, says we've seen the wickedness, oppression, and envy-driven work. Now that we've seen, we're responsible to not be part of the problem, but to be part of the solution as the hands and feet of Christ. Let's pray. Let's take a moment as we uh, consider, as we respond to the Word of God. How is He calling us to live in light of what we've seen? The same things that the teacher saw under the sun are the same things that we see every day under the sun. 
Maybe it's not such things as those things out there, but maybe it's, it's the person at work that everyone talks about behind their back, and we just kind of quietly go along with it. Maybe the call for us is to be a comforter to those kinds of people who are oppressed, to stand up for what's true and right in these situations. Maybe, there, maybe there's something that causes your heart to beat with anger, with holy and righteous anger. And we've just kind of let it sit there. What is God calling us to do in response to that? Maybe we've found ourselves caught up in this rat race trying to make a name for ourselves by wanting to be someone compared to somebody else. And his call for us is, hey, be content. Be content with me. Create, carve out that time in your schedule each day so that you could be reminded that all of me is really more than enough. And that when you see that I'm more than enough, then that overflow you can give to other people. How is God calling us to respond to what we see under the sun? As the hands and feet of Christ, we're called to be part of the solution, not a perpetuation of the problem. So let's pray to God and say, God, here am I. Here's my life. Would you use me? Would you take me? Would you show me what you're calling me to do? And let's make a prayer of commitment to surrender as we respond to his word. Let's take a couple moments to pray together like that as we respond to his word. Father in heaven, we have heard your word and we confess that the problem and what's wrong with this world is not something out there, but we realize that it's something that we see in the mirror every day of our lives. Father, we confess that we have been so often part of the problem, maybe not directly, but in our unwillingness to fight against what is wrong, to fight against the injustice and oppression in this world. We haven't worked towards seeing the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. And for that, we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would help us to see situations not from an under-the-sun perspective, but with the eyes of God, that you would help us to see indeed that everyone needs compassion, the kindness of a Savior. We pray that you would help us to go forth to be your hands and feet to a world, to a people, to friends, to classmates, to coworkers in need. And as we do, may we take the hope and the love of Christ. We thank you so much. Keep us from just hearing. Move us into action for your people's sake, for their joy, for their freedom, and for the kingdom of God and your glory. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.